for December 12th, 2022. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 754. Each of us is a brick in the wall. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Pete Fenzel, and I am here with only one other man, Mark Lee. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Hey, I'm I'm, I'm here to join the rebellion. Where do I sign up? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you might ask, well, why are there only two of us on the podcast today? And I would say because the rest of the podcast has no taste. Uh, there is a show. There is a show <laughs> that is out there that recently completed a television show on Disney Plus that is on anybody's short list of the best shows of the year or should be. And that is imminently overthinkable. That is very much in our wheelhouse and that matches up with everything else that we've done through the entire history of our project together. And apparently only two of us have bothered to watch it. And that is Andor. So today we are going to talk about Andor. Mark, are you ready to talk about Andor? Uh, on program, Pete. <laughs> on program. I am, I am on program. I am, <laughs> and slash or, as I like. That's the secret code. <laughs> and or. It's about uh, uh, it's, uh, it's the most Boolean show in space. Uh, <laughs> the uh, We're going to talk about Andor, which and we're going to be spoilers for Andor. And Andor is an adventure, political thriller with heists and uh, also, I don't want to mention too many of the other kinds of set pieces that it has, but it has all sorts of set pieces. Uh, and so... Uh, they, you don't want to be spoiled for what happens in Andor. Yeah, and I, and I would, would also add that like yeah. we're not going to do the. So sometimes we do like a, a plot summary uh, for those who have wandered into this without having um, uh, seen it. Like it, we can't possibly do it justice because like the show also has uh, season one has like four distinct parts to it as mm-hmm. well. And if you are listening to this, um, you have seen it all and you know what we're talking about. It's it's a, it's a lot. There's a lot of characters. Lots of ideas. So really just like stop listening to this and go no, freaking watch the no show. No, stop. If if you ever had any intention of watching Andor, you know you're going to be in conversations about Andor for like the next 15 years of your life. So listen to this podcast and just repeat a couple of things we said and let the other person talk. And you're going to crush it in any social interaction where the other person wants to talk about Andor. Just remember two or three things that your old buddies Mark and Pete said. And, uh, and we'll, we'll wait you weather okay, the Okay, f- fair enough. If you listen to this just so, like to feed your cocktail party chatter <laughs> about pop culture, <laughs> like to be that guy who, talks, who can talk about The Wire without having actually seen it, which, by the way, I would add is me. <laughs> definitely that person um yes continue yes. listening please write down two or three of the major ideas we we tell you and then just put those ideas into a machine learning ai and it will spit out your opinion for you and then you can share that with whoever you want uh, but no not. we want to talk about andor and yes yes so just put very briefly if you don't know what we're talking about andor is a live action television show by mostly by tony gilroy who is the guy who is behind for the most part rogue one and also stuff like the Bourne movies and a bunch of other stuff. So this is a big movie dude who is a director, creator, writer of a lot of this stuff. His brother also writes for it, I think, and who uh, has a very specific kind of ethos that he brings to his very intense, intense projects, very stylish, intense projects. And uh, and so this is about the rebellion. This is a show about the rebellion against the Empire in Star Wars, and it follows Cassian Andor, who is one of the characters in Rogue One and is a sort of wrong side of the law, you know, morally gray gunslinger guy with a heart of gold 
who uh, hustles his way from problem to problem. Sort of like Han Solo would be like if your parents didn't really want you to hang out with him. As opposed to Han Solo we meet, who is like mostly just smarmy and like not particularly difficult to deal with. Right? But like this is this is more than Han shoots first kind of situation. This is like Han shoots first. The story sh- starts with Han shooting first and it only twice. keeps shooting from there twice. Yeah, he shoots yeah. twice first. And then, it, and then it's it, uh, so it's totally unambiguous that Han is shooting first. Uh, and then it goes on from there. So, yes, we're talking about Andor. We're talking about rebellion. We're talking about politics and adventure. And uh, I mean, I don't think we're necessarily going to get into the politics of like specific people. Right. And it's like, oh, man, you know, did you hear about Sinema? No, we're not going to talk about that. I don't even say your name right. Um, this isn't going to become so, Eric Saul, Adams. Saul Guerrero's politics, however, are completely fair. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's not going to become like Eric Adams cast 2022. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Radical. But no, we're going to talk about Andor. And Mark, I want to start by asking you, of course, the yeah. biggest question that I think mm-hmm. anybody takes out of out of Andor, which is, uh, uh, is your, is your Star Wars part of your heart permanently broken or did Andor somehow manage to heal it or mend it in some way? (laughs) (laughs) My my heart's been through a lot, Pete. Oh yeah. It's kind of a hard question to ask, but it's a fascinating one. And like, it's a great place to start this conversation because I think like, um, fans complex relationships with, this franchise is um, not too dissimilar from kind of like the complex way that the show asks you to think about rebellion and, and good guys and bad guys. Mm. Hot take there. Okay. So just to like spin this out here for, for, for people of our generation, right? Like late millennials, right? And we certainly grew up with the original movies and like it really hit like, you know, sort of a pre-adolescent, um, this notion of adventure and power fantasy and ooh, bright lights and laser swords and spaceships and guns go pew, pew, pew. And ooh, the evil bad guy and the good guys. And this is all great stuff and was just, you know, perfect for that kind of like sixth grade mind of mine. Um, now, to be clear, of course, Star Wars came out in 1977 and people were of ages, you know, younger and older than sixth grade in 1977. And it was a worldwide international phenomenon. And, you know, it was, you know, um, it was mostly good escapist entertainment, but also, you know, of course, you know, grew from there throughout the tri- through the later in the trilogy with some good serious ideas and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're left with the story about the light side and dark side of the force, the space wizards, the space battles, and all that good stuff. Um, and we proceed from there to the sequel, the prequel trilogy, um, which you know was uh, interesting ideas, was certainly you know. Uh, problematic in its execution, Charger being so on and so forth, right? Again, Star Wars fans have been through a lot. Disney comes in, acquires Star Wars. I'm skipping a lot of things over, over of course, you know, including mainly the animated shows, um, which will complicate the discourse. But here we are. Disney comes in, acquires Star Wars, um, kicks off a new um, uh, movie trilogy and promises. Um, at the, what do they promise? They promise more. I think really, I don't think they set expectations quite beyond that. Um, and, uh, they, they did give us more. I think the sequel trilogy, um, now that we are three years past episode nine, rise of Skywalker, um, is consensus, um, pretty disappointing. Hashtag somehow Palpatine returned, um, which we might get back to that a little bit more later. And I'll add to that. there. Um, streaming serialized storytelling has been decidedly hit and miss um, with bright spots with, Ma- with Mandalorian, um, weaker entries with Obi-Wan. Um, 
and, and the Boba Fett uh, series for sure being a probably probably a low point in there. Um, and I'd also add like the 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 singular add on top of that the the singular movie outings um, that were meant to fill in all sorts of different spaces and tell different kinds of stories um, kind of did and kind of didn't right Rogue One tried to be the one that'd be like oh this is the real story of the rebellion um, but we'll talk about how Andor finally got to that um, and then the solo movie um, was tried to be kind of a a, a more lighthearted uh, romp um, and and turned it into be kind of just like a, kind of a middling uh, type of action movie anyway a lot of that there is to say that um, Star Wars fans have become accustomed to um, a very inconsistent level of quality and a real lack of coherence to the type of stories and the overall arc of the storytelling that we've been getting from Disney. Um, very notably, right, you know, um, unlike the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars keeps getting told like wildly out of order, right? We have a sequel trilogy. Um, we still have prequel stories that are being told like in the prequel era, like with the Bad Batch animated show. Um, we have things that are um, uh, filling in between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy, and then also things filling in between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. Um, and there's a kind of a, a constant sense of whiplash and also like a sense of uh, – um, what's the right word I'm going for here? Um, lightness, and not in a good way. I think like – even like a show like Obi-Wan – um, which tries to get us to, to take seriously this notion of um, Obi-Wan the Jedi and all of his trauma and his guilt and things like that. And it did succeed in some ways. Um, but I, I, I call that lightness in regards to like, you know, like an, 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 I, let's go say it, an excessive amount of fan service. Um that just kind of keeps getting dished out and like, you know, returning to, you know, to the previous characters and lightness also refers to like the production quality as well um, with uh, kind of some uh, the, the CGI that is not great. And um, that kind of, you know, poorly executed uh, uh, slow motion chase sequence with the uh, young princess Leia and things like that. So lightness um, is, is not something that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm applying in a compliment. And then into that comes Andor. Um, and uh, let's go with the keep going with the end, the lightness theme, right? There's a darkness to this show and a seriousness to it um, that uh, has, has surprised a, a lot a lot of us, I think my, my, myself included, um, and has uh, re- I don't want to say restored faith, but like you know injected the the Disney era of Star Wars with some much needed seriousness. Um, with a level of artistic craft um, that is way beyond, again, like, you know, what we've been expecting so far. And then to kind of try to wrap this up here and, and throw it to Pete for your um, for re- reaction to it is like, you know, even though, again, we, we're still kind of getting whipsawed, you know, throughout the, the timeline um, through all of this is just like some sense that like um, that that new ideas can be executed well. Um, and in a way uh, that that just really quite has not been done yet. And that is kind of the forward momentum that we all need for this. And also that is like carrying uh, going back to the original point here about kind of our ages for this, like, you know, in, in a certain way, like for myself, at least like catching up with the fraught period of adulthood <laughs> that I at least find myself <laughs> in, uh, you know, trapped between responsibilities and and and, uh, and forced to deal with like, you know, many, many morally <laughs> gray areas and lack of clear 
uh, sense of, uh, of, of of right and wrong and um, and and things like that. So um, that is my kind of you know opening gambit for talking about like you know how Andor fits into um, kind of the meta story of Star Wars uh, in the pop culture and in particular in my life as well. So I'll be curious to hear Pete like what of that resonates with you. I mean, I think I think your perspective on it is one that I've heard from other people and makes a lot of sense. I have a slightly different perspective. Yep. And I would I want to try to make it a little bit more personal because I think that's also part of I think that if you are if you are trying to evaluate all of this new Star Wars stuff on any basis other than a personal basis, Andor is far and away the best thing. Like like your sense of of lightness and, that you're describing, I used to use a metaphor. I don't know if I've brought this up on the podcast before when describing this to my improv teams, the concept I would try to illustrate or I try to describe is a scene where the gears are catching or not. And the gears are the idea that, that all of the details and specifics that are present in a scene, whether they're emotional or, you know, material or, you know, it ideas, have uh, theoretical or expected impacts, like hypothetical or expected impacts on other specifics in the scene. If somebody puts a glass down on a table, somebody else who jostles the table is probably going to jostle the glass, but that, but with feelings, right? And with motivations and everything. And if you're in a situation where it feels like the things that are happening are meaningfully interacting with and moving along with the other things that are happening, and I mean that writ large as well as writ small, like feelings, you know, motivations, jokes, right? If if there feels like there's a dense degree of interrelated causality, then the, the scene tends to ha- feel like it has more heft, right? And, and it feels like, oh, it, it's, for me, it draws more interest. I think there's some dimension of that that draws you in. And I think it also um, means that there's a certain greater degree of like emotional listening and emotional awareness and kind of relationships become deeper and more credible and more interesting in these fictional characters, and and that the sense of weight that Andor has to me feels similar in that it, there's a complex web of causality that is honored and it isn't being dropped. So like if you put the if you put the glass on the table and somebody kicks the table and nobody no water falls anywhere, that immediately like busts you out of the scene, right? right. All, all of a sudden everything stops feeling real. And Obi Wan I think had a lot of that where it had scenes that were really intense. And really well done and uh, sentimental and deeply felt, but uh, which then were followed by other scenes that were completely unrelated to what had happened before. And it wasn't really clear what the, you know, the sort of scope or rules of the universe were. And there were things that were put down that weren't really picked up. And not just because they, they you know, they weren't like they weren't doing enough fan service either, but because like. You know, we never found out what it meant to be a sashimi miner. That never really mattered for anything. Yeah, yeah. And and that sort of lends the idea that the show kind of breezes from episode to episode, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not, and and it doesn't really have that seriousness. Yeah, now, and I'll just add to that my main complaint of that show, which is that like the empire's constantly letting Obi Wan out of their <laughs> of their grip, like over and over again. Yeah. Uh, to to the point where it becomes comical. Yeah, and the third sister and her like totally inane story arc. Uh, but but I don't necessarily mean that in terms of her motivations, just in terms of the choices she makes near the end of her story that lead to the colossal failure of her years long plan to assassinate Darth Vader. Right? Right, like, right. It's like it's like stuff like that. It sort of drops the ball. Now, I, I get that. I also feel like Andor is very mature 
and adult in the problems that it's approaching. Uh, some of these shows are not. You know, Star Wars is also for children to an extent, and so a lot of yep. stuff isn't really for that. But parts of The Mandalorian for sure are. Uh, and, uh, although they also thread a needle from a personal perspective, I would say that the prequels were just such a, a ridiculousness. It's, it's such a sort of like, not even a trauma, just like a weird thing that everybody went through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we all, and, and star Wars has this anchor in our lives because of the powerful nostalgia it has that interacts with different generations in different ways, but is so present. And we can't, you know, we can pretend like that nostalgia doesn't exist. These symbols don't mean anything to us, but we would not be telling the truth. And so for some people, they grew up with the prequels. For some people like us, they grew up with the originals, but as children, right? And like watching yeah. these shows as children with the action figures and stuff. For other people, they saw it when they were older. For other people, you know, they only saw this stuff later and, uh, and they see it in sort of part of film history. And they don't understand what everybody is making a big deal about. But what I would say is that, you know, when Disney came around – they showed us hope, right? And I don't mean like hope to beat the empire. I mean like hope that this stuff could be interesting again and, yep. and not just ridiculous, not just totally freaky yeah. ridiculous. I think there was and, optimism. And, like there was a sense of optimism. I felt it was like I, – I, I felt – I also went good. Well, I'm, I don't think Disney taking over is the big event. I think it's the the Force Awakens trailer coming out, which was the big like, oh, my God, they're actually going to do it. Mm-hmm. Remember there was that yep. piece going around of like how to fix Star Wars. And it was like Star Wars needs to be old. Star Wars, It had all these like characteristics yep. of Star one. Wars. Yep. And the, the Force Awakens trailer, it's like, oh, they were listening. They were listening to everybody. everybody they checked off all the boxes. Bad. Yeah, they, they figured everything out. Um, and again, I was I don't I wouldn't be so I wasn't wouldn't be quite so cynical in describing how people felt at the time. Though in retrospect, it's like, well, yeah, it turned out to be kind of a mystery box project where it didn't really have a heart and they didn't really know what they were doing. Like in the sense that they didn't seem to have a long term plan and things tended to go all over the place and it ended up being really messy. Uh, and uh, then, of course, a lot of people decided this was the thing they were going to be angry about more than anything else in the world or in their personal lives, including like the deaths of loved ones or major armed conflicts or like horrible plagues. They were going to focus their entire <laughs> lives on hating Star Wars, which yeah. was a very interesting C- turn certain, in history. Certain parts of Star Wars, to be specific, right? Yeah. yeah. I, well, I mean, I, I I do think I personally believe that there was a lot of like bot interference and magnification in the sort of anti-Star Wars online movements as oh, part I, of just a general vibe. That's not thing. just a personal belief. I think that's yeah. like been proven out by um, yeah, yeah. yeah through reporting. Yeah. But like but like Mandalorian came out. I loved Mandalorian when it came out. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. Mandalorian was great. Right. And uh, and Boba Fett's ridiculous, but I still watched it and enjoyed it. Right. Um, and Obi-Wan, you know, I liked it. You know, we talked about it. It was good. I loved Rogue One. I thought Rogue One was was really great. Um, so yeah, yeah, we, we were all big great. fans of Rogue One when it came out. You should go yeah, back yeah, to yeah. that podcast. So, so it's like, yeah, so it's inconsistent. But my main feeling about it was not so much like inconsistency as it was sort of like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll, I did, there's a reason I didn't watch Andor until it was already almost all out because it's like, you know, some of this stuff is good. Some of this stuff is not good. You know, I uh I want to watch certain things. I was really excited about baby Yoda, but like there was not the sense that there was in the prequels that like, this is must see stuff. Like you have to be part of this. Uh, and then here's count Dooku having a 10 minute meeting with a bunch of animatronic <laughs> CGI aliens. <laughs> right? Like and it's like, what do you think about the trade federation? What do you think about the Oh, past the crumpets. Right. And it's like, Oh, there's Obi-Wan Kenobi creeping around on the ceiling. This movie makes no sense. Right. Uh, and, um, so, yes. So but Andor reintroduced the sense that everything was going to matter. Everything was going to be, you know, quality in this story. 
And it was going to they were going to treat things seriously. There was going to be a kind of high standard that was going to be consistently applied. And it was a different sort of expectation. I will say that I will say that, like, my Star Wars heart wasn't really broken. You know, I also watched The Bad Batch, which was pretty good. And and uh, I would I would totally I would totally watch a new Ewok movie if it came out. But like, I'm an Ewok guy. Let me ask you, are you an Empire Strikes Back guy or a Return of the Jedi guy? Oh, you really have to make a choose between one of those? Oh, I feel like for most people, that's a very easy choice. If it's not for you, that's also interesting. I feel like most people have a very clear preference of either uh, Empire Strikes Back. You know what? If I'm being totally honest with you, I'm going to say Return of the Jedi because of the space battle piece. And we've talked about it many times on this podcast before how, like, you know, that is that is like one of the main my main draws for yeah, Star Wars yeah. space battle stuff. Yeah. yeah so, there yeah, you go. Yeah, because you're the big you love uh, Rogue Squadron squadrons. uh Star Wars Squadrons, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the Star Wars Squadrons video game. That's yeah. what it's called. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah. So I think I think for me this was like, wow, this is really good. Now Star Wars can can tell these kinds of stories. Um, I don't expect the other stories to be like this either. Like I don't expect you know all of a sudden Mandalorian is going to be more like you know Andor. None of these, and it even goes beyond Star Wars. So few of these shows, every episode feels like it has a purpose and is like worth watching. Sorry, when you say these shows, you mean what, like the, the, the Disney Star Wars shows or like oh. what, just like kind of just the latest crop of uh, streaming stuff? Not the even content, the latest like stuff. The, the content, like go, the going back to like Daredevil on Netflix, like all of these oh, yeah, 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 yeah. fairly limited, you know, 10 episodes in a season, hour long ish action adventure shows with a hero that is from another medium that's being converted into a live action TV show. And I feel like there's like three really good episodes. I mean, our own beloved John Parrott used to talk about this all the time and they would run out of gas and there'd be like an episode where Luke Cage is really badly injured and sitting on a staircase the whole time because they ran out of money and they didn't have enough scripts. Right. Like, and so you'd have a great moment where he's like power man punching his way out of the cinder blocks of his prison. Right. And then there's another moment where it's like, have you ever really thought about your family? I think about my family all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Shot. Counter shot. We're in a staircase. This this episode cost us twelve dollars. Right? Like we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Why is this show to, taking so long to watch? To, to take a brief detour. There's this there's this very, you know, overwhelming sense these days of like, you know, these streaming shows, um, you know, have this um, meta economic or narrative to them around like, you know, the need to attract and retain subscribers. And like that leads to this sense of uh, cheapness and filler. Yeah. Yeah, right. Directly to those things there, as you know, as opposed to like, you know, here is the compelling story that we want to tell over the course of 12 episodes. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a different the whole binge ability thing and how that changed the way that people watch TV. There is there's been a lot of adjustment to like and also the different metrics of how do you hook somebody at the beginning of the show to get them to subscribe to this to this uh, this uh, service. And then like once you have them, how much less do you care about them? Right. <laughs> right? Yep. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's like to, to on that? I don't know how much money this of a tangent we want to go on to but like this is a weird show in that regard because like disney already has the star wars thing locked down they were they afraid yeah. of losing it and they felt like we need to go big on this because like especially like the, the bob chapek um era which is now over right you would think yeah. like you know they would have skimped out on every star wars thing which kind of they kind of did with uh with the other 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 tv shows and not invested so heavily in this thing that just not really maybe it is about Maybe someone, a bean counter or some strategist decided this is actually the thing that's going to bring new Star Wars fans in. But it seems more like a, like really please like the Mark Lees out there who really wanted a super high quality Star Wars thing to like 
rekindle their burning passion for this thing we call Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe. I wonder I also wonder whether the goals for it were much more modest and they just did a really good job making it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I wonder because I don't know, because there's also heteroglossy in a lot of these shows. There's a lot of like, oh, you know, like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's a ton of heteroglossy, which is why I never really uh, go by or or um, see credible the criticism that the Marvel Cinematic Universe does the same thing over and over again, other than the portal stuff and like the third act punchy punchy. Uh, but like, oh, you know, this is the, you know, buddy comedy. This one is the heist movie. This one is the relationship movie, right? Like this one is the, you know, uh, sort of uh, coming of age, you know, or like coming of middle age, you know, movie. Like they they they're, they pick up on different styles of movies and kind of make the superhero movie into the style of movie that they're talking about a lot. Uh, we talked about this with, um, with, with Fury Road too, how Mad Max gets kind of the stories of Mad Max are stories that are told by people who've encountered this guy at some point and they don't all agree with each other. They don't happen in a necessarily clear sequence and there's no real obligation for them all to be stylistically consistent. And so Fury Road doesn't have to worry about like, well, Mel Gibson had this kind of mullet in the third Mad Max movie. And so now he should have a bigger <laughs> mullet, right? Like, uh, no, no, we're, we're telling different kinds of stories with each one of these things. And so if you just start from the idea that Andor is the spy one, and and that necessitates that it be tightly plotted because it's the spy one. Well, then you've solved like half the problems these things have, which is they don't have mm. enough story to fill all their episodes. Right? That's so, a really like, good point. Yeah. So so I mean, that, that was one of my feelings about Andor before we get more in depth into it, which was it was really helped by the kind of show that it was and by the execution, the successful execution of the kind of show that it was, which followed down through so many other dimensions about it, which was that it was a tightly plotted suspense based action adventure spy show where, you know, and a spy like thief, it's all the same, like cons and thieves and spies and intrigue, right? The, the prison break also fits into that whole oeuvre. Exactly. Well. Like yeah. everything had to, you, you had to outline everything ahead of time. You had to know what was going to happen. You have to end things on cliffhangers a lot which means that you can never let the situation get too far blown out from the possibility of like other events mattering. Right. So like I'm trying to, I'm trying to come up with the silliest example of this from the book of Boba Fett. And I don't want to, I hate blaming the book of Boba Fett because that's the Robert Rodriguez one. And Robert Rodriguez always does this, right? Like, hmm. like, you know, in Desperado is not a very grounded movie, right? Like where, uh, like, Oh, you know, Enrique Iglesias shows up with a guitar case with a bazooka in it and starts shooting people. <laughs> right? Like he's not been in the movie before now. Fine. Right. Like this is what we're doing. Uh, like the, the story of El Mariachi, it, it, the heightening is, is carries and carried in a different way. But I felt like there were definitely examples where Boba Fett accomplished the major thing that he was trying to accomplish. And then it was like, and there's more story <laughs> like everything else. He's doing. like maybe the, the subplot where Boba Fett has to hire the like dashboard confessional fans to be his like biker gang. It's <laughs> like, it's maybe that's such a like lowering of the stakes for when Boba Fett is like starving to death in the desert and captured by the like indigenous Tuscan Raiders and like forced to win their respect through like a series of unarmed combats against like people and monsters whilst starving and dying in the heat and dust. And then it's like, Oh, and by the way, this, these three people, you know, they have bikes and you need to like hire them to do bike jobs. <laughs> and it's like, come on, man. Like, I don't care about any of this. Who but are Pete, these people? But Pete, 
we have to see how Star Wars involves the common people, the everyday <laughs> people. That's why that was in the show, Pete. Yeah. Uh, no, as in case you couldn't tell, I'm kind of joking. That that might pivot us to like you know kind of the, the real the real meat of, of the show and like you know uh, about it how it actually shows a popular uprising against the the, the, the against yes. the empire. But yes. before we get there, just to kind of round out like you know the kind of the personal relationship to this. Like I, I'm hearing you, Pete. Like you know the respecting the heteroglossia is important, but like that whole part about like you know this particular place where you are in adulthood. And like, you know, yeah. having gone through like idealist and cynical phases and, you know, burden responsibility, all that. Um, and like, does, does that the, 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 the kind of like the serious, like seriousness of the show and its ideas and its moral ambiguity like resonate with you in that same way that it, that it did for me? I think so. I think Mandalorian hit right when I became a dad. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah, the that's other awesome. difference, because you had already yep. been a dad for a little bit when Mandalorian hit. So like but then it's like, oh, man, this guy has this little baby. And I have this little baby <laughs> and like, <laughs> and, oh, I'm getting chills already just thinking and talking about it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. so in that sense, um, you know, being a, rel- a very new parent when this stuff, when the new TV shows started, I didn't really have the luxury of um, worrying about whether I was being idealistic or not enough. Which is something that sort of plagued me a little bit through 2020. It was sort of like, well, no matter what happens, my main responsibility is like taking care of this child in this world where this, you know, plague is running wild. So it's like, yeah, whether you want to go protest in the street or not is irrelevant, Pete. You can't. You have a newborn baby and that baby <laughs> can't get COVID, right? Like, so you have to stay home and <laughs> and that's what's going to happen, right? Like, and uh, it, it took a lot of the pressure off, but it also kind of disinvolved me in a lot of things. Yep, <laughs> and yep. uh, And so I didn't necessarily feel like... I felt a different sort of alienation from politics per se. And I guess having just had another baby, um, it hasn't really come back. I guess I've been finding myself more and more investigating new sorts of idealisms and new sorts of ways of thinking. I've definitely been on a philosophy kick lately. And so I guess Andor does arrive at an apt time when I really am thinking a lot about this stuff. And it's it's, it's rewarding and it's helpful and useful that it does that. Um, It's tough. Being an adult is tough in terms of applying the lessons you learned when you were younger because of course a lot of them were developed a long time ago and turned out not to be right about how the world was going to treat you or just like the scope that you engage with the world in isn't the scope at which it's talked about which is another thing about this show right is the way that it plays with scope Mm. i thought was pretty interesting and and part of what makes it special because it's able to tell the big story on a personal level by strategically positioning all the people in places where what they're doing kind of reaches out and also by again, by its basis in suspense, holding back an, a lot of information, but giving you enough to guess it so that it starts fleshing out the details. Like, you don't actually see a ton of overt acts of cruelty by the Empire in the show. Um, you're, they're implied or discussed sideways, or, like, you see sideways effects of them. You know, yeah, there you, aren't, you, you know... You, you are up close, you're forced to confront very up close with the brutal interrogation of, uh, what was the character, Bix? Yeah, yeah, but even then they don't. Sh- just even then they don't play the sound for you. Right. Like yeah. They hold yeah, yeah, it yeah, back. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying that there's none of it, but it's more like they give you a sense that there's more that you can't see. I guess is a better way of a yeah. better idea to articulate there. It's like they show you some, but they also hint to you that there's a lot that you're not seeing. Um, and in Book of Boba Fett, there's nothing you're not seeing. It's all on the screen, including the giant rancor jumping from building to building. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nothing is held back in that. No, no, no. no. I mean, and also, to add, just add obvious things to that point, since we're, uh, we're at that point in the conversation, right? Like, they spend so much time in the prison sequence building these widgets. 
Yes. No information about what the thing is for other than just various context clues. And like people guess it pretty early on. But of course, these are yeah. parts for the Death Star, right? Like very, 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 very small parts. You know, like, right. I don't know, like millions of these things go or are, are, are like just lots of like, you know, wing nuts <laughs> go to, to assemble yeah. a Death Star. Amazing, right? Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so, so this so this I'm, I'm guessing well, not guessing you've told me that all this affected you a lot. What are some of the things in this show that connected with you and affected you, especially as someone who's been kind of in and out of very major relationships with civic life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Just to catch people up on, you know, on, on Markley's journey in civic life. Right. Spent many years working for the government uh you know like like being in the trenches and being like you know i will make the public sector work for the people the people pete um and now i'm not i do something (laughs) else (laughs) i'm not engaging it that way um and uh i you know kind of stepping back a little bit from you know from you know direct participation um in the the machineries of government and and the public sector um, and uh, a, a sense of idealism that I had going into all this. Yeah, absolutely. Has been like, you know, uh, uh, as subordinated is the right word. Um, but it has uh, it has not it has not survived unscathed mm-hmm. over the years. <laughs> Let's put it that way. In particular, like, you know, it's seen like, you know, good intentions um, withering on the vine um due to incompetence and neglect and also like hardcore malevolence right <laughs> that you see in, in in the public sector so with all of that then like i i keep coming back to kind of two or three key um, monologues or like chunks of text in this show that like just like really really resonated with me personally and then also like in the broader context of thinking about like the big star wars story again of like people rising up against the rebellion and those three things are um the you certainly mean people of, rising up against the empire right? uh, i guess uh, some people empire, do yeah, rise yeah. up against the rebellion that's also part of the story well, the, the rebellion rises up against itself in kind of a weird way um but yeah it's people rising up against the empire so these three these things are the manifesto right i think the character's nevik is his name um sure. the, the the young lad who yep. uh jesse who, who dies furious yeah exactly oh, yeah he, he dies in the heist <laughs> Um, his, only metaphorically is he Jesse from Fast and Furious. His, his the one who's mani- too pr- too beautiful for this world, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. His manifesto, um, and like the the key idea there is this like notion of like you know freedom is pure, freedom is natural, and uh, tyranny is unnatural, um, and that you know that that's like the this kind of. Uh, really like, appealing to like this truly base notions of like fundamental human rights and this exhortation to try. Right. Um, it was just, uh, it's, it's, it's played out at the beginning of the, of the, of the last episode and is like so emotional and so stirring. and just like, you know, reminds you of like, you know, like what, what the heck are we doing all of this and, and this being like, you know, either living or telling stories, why are we doing all this stuff? And that is why to try Right. Mm-hmm. You know, to 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 breathe life to the freedom that is there and is trying to be squashed by the artificiality um, of tyranny. So there's that. And then like in incredible stark contrast to that is a few episodes earlier, um, the character Luthen, right, the rebel leader, um, his amazing monologue that he delivers where he's basically like, you know, what is my he, he's in response to this imperial officer who's a double agent who is super stressed out over being a double agent. He's like, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my family. That's my sacrifice. And he asks Luthen, what's your sacrifice? And he basically says, I sacrifice everything. <laughs> like my purity, my sense of my, 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 um, 
my my uh, the, the sense that I like you know I, that I can stand in the light, essentially that that I can like look at myself in the mirror. I'm sacrificing that, um, and it's a, this feeling that like you know I, I'm gonna be a good person um, for for the rebellion. I'm sacrificing everything, and uh, to the point right. Remember, like you know, this is in the context of like he is allowing um, you know many rebel soldiers to die so that this uh they can maintain the facade that uh, they, they, they don't blow the cover or the, the, this imperial the, the the their intelligence source mm-hmm. so there's that and then the last one is marva's um uh speech uh, her funeral speech uh, delivered um uh post-mortem uh via the the emo droid um who was awesome um and you know her exhortation to fight fight the bastards fight the empire um Right. All that kind of comes together as, as like these three and in particular um, Marvel's funeral statement like, as a synthesis. Right. Of like the idealism and the pragmatism and like, you know, the the the, you know, a a a a dark pragmatism, a cynical pragmatism will lead you to just kind of slowly accepting the empire tyranny in your life. Um, a um, a horror, a a. a a an idealism will power you and and uh, and kind of lift you up out of that and kind of in between that is is Luthen's um uh cold-eyed realism there like maybe the three of them don't quite work you know they aren't, aren't quite in the same spectrum but like um as kind of uh like nuanced political statements all three of them and then all kind of you know elevated by Nevix's uh, manifesto there at, at, in, in particular um, were tremendous pieces of writing and just like, you know, just good pieces of political thought to chew on in this moment. Um, uh, as, you know, as, as democracy itself, see, apparently, uh, teeters on the brink. And also, you know, as uh, people's, uh, you know, continue to rise up, uh, against oppressive regimes as they, as they have done many times over the years. So yeah, lots of politics in the show, Pete. Yeah, for they, sure. Like, they, they spoke to me in kind of like pretty deep and uh, and profound ways. I'm glad that it has affected you. That's awesome. Um, to look at these three speeches, I'll, I'll give a, a my take on them, I guess, to really um, think about what, what, where do they fit in in terms of idealism, in terms of what are the thoughts that are being expressed. Um, because I or like how, where do they fall in the context of traditions of similar sorts of thoughts being expressed in similar sorts of situations? Mm-hmm. And that this, I think, is part of where Andor gets really interesting. There's been a lot of, you know, ink spilled all over the place, you know, real and, and uh, digital about a lot of the stuff, mostly digital. So the notion that that freedom, right, is has a purity to it. This suggests uh that's a, I think he even he even speaks of it as if it has a um, a natural law aspect. Yeah, right? that, that, that like it is it is a natural part of the state of being as a as a person that you are going to try to seek out acts of rebellion in your life, right? Like this is just sort of part of the nature of things, and this mm-hmm. is an anarchist argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to an extent, I think this is very this is similar to Noam Chomsky's human nature language argument. Which is the and it's also similar to much earlier uh, liberal arguments, you know, much more like social contract kinds of arguments and arguments from, uh, you know, William Godwin and uh, kind of rights arguments. But the idea that that there's something either about the rational way that you understand what people are or 
the natural way that you see people function that shows that they seek out liberation in many respects. And in that sense, and sort of aggregated political commitment to liberation as a concept uh, follows, you know, naturally and logically from this understanding of human beings, either in a rational context or in a biological context, being freedom seekers. Um, and there's the idea that like, well, you know, babies learn languages without anybody telling them to. Uh, there's something in your brain that goes out into the world looking to expand itself, mm-hmm. right? Looking to grow, looking for and what is that but freedom seeking, right? Um, or also this idea, you know, of of uh, of, um, you know, of, 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 of like uh, what? When you do something, it kind of becomes part of you. And if a ruler is trying to take that away from you, it's tyranny and all that stuff. So so there's these I, there's these different sort of sort of anarchistic, sort of liberal. And both of them have to do with kind of opposing a government that clamps down too hard on the expressions of the mind and the brain. Right. And then and then you have Luthen. Well, I'll leave Luthen for third. A second one I'll say is uh, Andor the Elder. Um, and I thought it was interesting that the show is called Andor and she introduces herself as Andor and like the other guy was Andor, but his birth name isn't Andor. So there's this sense. Yeah. That, like, yeah. As like, opposed to calling the show Cassian. Yeah. 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 Which yeah exactly. Yeah. So Andor is the name of the woman who starts the rebellion and also the name of the protagonist of the show. But right, the protagonist right. of the show goes on a personal journey of change wherein he becomes a rebel, which he wasn't originally. Right. So there's this sense that Andorness is, is a, is more than just a family name. It's, it's this sort of, identity that you take on as having this specific sort of relationship with society. And so for her, there's, it's more dialectical. She's, she's much more of a sort of died in the wool revolutionary who has been doing this her whole life and, and very much sees what you say, the, um, the, you, I'm reading what you pasted here, the wound in the center of the galaxy. Is that what they call it? A, a um, wound that won't heal at the center of the galaxy. The wound that won't yeah. heal at the center of the galaxy, right? And so this is this is similar to stuff like the alienation of labor. This is similar to stuff like colonization and empire and stuff in similar sorts of literatures. These are the more dialectical and dialectical inspired notions of revolution, wherein you belong to a group of people, not just an individual, right? So like so like um, the first dude, the manifesto is kind of an individual manifesto. It's about why you should want to be free and it's about what you should do. And then the Andor manifesto is more of a collective manifesto. We are Ferrix. We exist in a certain relation and consciousness with respect to each other. The Empire is this foreign group. They exist with a particular sort of relationship and context for them. They have a particular sort of idea of who we should be, and their presence is forcing us to become alienated from ourselves and become the people that they want us to be in this exploitative relationship that they have with us. This is due to a fundamental wound in the way that their whole society is structured that it's run by an evil wizard, um, but, but also like, which I just love. I just want to take another break and say that I love so much. The one thing that makes Star Wars interesting more than anything else as a place to keep telling stories is that everybody thinks the emperor has some sort of plan. Right. Like everybody, everybody <laughs> assumes the emperor is doing what he does for a reason. Right. Like even I think my one of my favorite moments in Andor was when the head of the um, not the USB, the ISB, the sort of uh, the sort of. Um, 
Stasi or whatever of the empire, right? Like uh, he says like, well, you know, we're doing this because this way the emperor forgets about the last thing that happened. And I want to be like, dude, the emperor doesn't care. The emperor cares if he can scare you or if you're incompetent and he might kill you. But like the empire doesn't care about and the emperor doesn't care about any of this. The emperor's in his room cackling to himself naked under his robes, right? Like, uh, and actually, I will even say, and I don't want to I don't want to invest in this too much because we're in the middle of a good part of the conversation. But I will say, if you do care about the evil wizard stuff, the line that always gets to me and I'm just going to plant this seed and maybe we'll come back to it after Andor season two. The land that line that always sticks with me is when Luke Skywalker walks up to the emperor and is like, no, you're wrong. You know, soon I'll be dead. And so will you. Right. Because the rebellion's going to blow up the Death Star. Right. And, and the empire and the emperor, he says, you know, like. Uh, he tells he tells Luke, you know, he's going to it's going to fail. He's anticipated everything. The big line that I that I remember from the emperor emperor when he's wherever he specifically says it is everything has transpired according to my design. And I always ask when I hear that line, everything <laughs> like really. <laughs> and then I look at him and I'm like, yup, <laughs> like I totally believe. And this is like a strong reading of the emperor that I don't necessarily think a lot of people are into, but I'm totally into it, which is that the emperor's goal is to get Luke Skywalker into the room so that he and Darth Vader can fight to be his BFF. And like Luke Skywalker can like kill his dad and become his apprentice. And that everything else that happens is not as important to the emperor as that, even including the entirety of the empire itself or the rebellion, which he never seems to care about at all right like and uh and that the the empire again to go back to bring this back to what uh andor is talking about right if the wound in the middle of the empire to translate this into how like real people would function right um (laughs) if the wound in the middle of the empire is that the emperor has a motive that has nothing to do with anything anybody else is doing right and as such everybody is sort of organizing around the emperor and then if you want to expend like a little bit of mysticism around the emperor's selfishness and evil and disregard right like if you think about thanos as ultimately being callous just like not caring about people you know the emperor is ultimately sadistic he like takes pleasure in the pain and suffering of others and and in like making them afraid and making them you know serve him and then cutting their hands off and stuff right like if this is the spirit that's in the center of this society and all of its institutions are built around that and all of its social interactions are informed by it then the whole society has this like systemic systemic issue that can't be fixed without removing the emperor Mm -hmm. um and of course in star wars removing the emperor is probably going to have a higher success rate uh, although if some of the ex- old extended universe stuff is to be believed, it won't uh, then say like, you know, executing the head of state of a real country and then like hoping that the person who replaces them is better um, and whatever that means. But uh, that's another we don't have to oh, go into the politics uh, yeah, yeah. of the 2000s and, and the Middle East and and certain uh, choices that were made that maybe didn't work out. Uh, I was gonna say, well, well, success rate for moving the emperor. Well, you know, we saw how the first time it worked out. Didn't really quite. But there's a second time. You know, they got another chance yeah. at it. So. <laughs> We'll, well see. Like, episode 10, right? I'm just saying that, like, sometimes removing the head of state is, like, seems like an important thing to do. Sometimes it's a huge mistake. But the point the point being that, like, in this situation, the relevant thing is that the empire is organized around the emperor and the individual people in their lives have the, you know, the, the quote-unquote evil of the emperor informs what they do. It informs the incentives that they're presented with. You know, like, in another life, uh, you know, the 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 guard dude whose name is uh, not Silvus, 
what's his name? Uh, the 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 security guy, my favorite character oh, in the Cyril, whole show, the Benal- Benali of Evil, Mister Benali of Evil. Yeah, so. and I'll hand off I'll hand it off to you to talk about Cyril in just a minute. But like in another world, Cyril is the hero. He's the hero of his own story. Like he's the Han Solo of his story. He mm-hmm. like catches the girl, saves her, and like clutches her in in, in you know in in a tight embrace at an opportune moment, and like. He's, he's doing he, he, tries, he tries to make an, an arousing motivational speech to his troops. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but because he has this from the Marva speech, because he has this relationship that's systemically related to the, the wound that won't heal at the middle of the galaxy, everything he does turns out wrong. And that there's really no way that like things can get handed over to Cyril and he's going to fix it. Right. Like, well, Cyril believes in justice. Right. Like, is this really about justice? Not real. Not in an abstract sense. This is this is about in this context, this group of people really trying to maintain their own identity and fight back and resist and hopefully overcome this other group of people that have these sort of historical forces. So, like, that's the second perspective. Right. The first perspective is you as an individual have both rational and biological reasons to want to rebel against oppressive governments. Uh, They make sense. They're defensible and they might work. And you should probably try to be optimistic. The the Marva speech is, you know, we, us, our group of people are being infringed upon by this other group of people in this way that is really terrible. And we are not facing the reality of it. And we need to face the reality of it. And we need to take drastic action and we need to do it now. And and part of doing that is realizing who we are as a group of people, developing that consciousness and fighting back against it collectively. There's no I in team. Each of us is a brick in the wall. That is kind of funny. Right, right? You right. can literally be a brick in the wall. <laughs> right, yeah. And then Luthen, though, is like, Luthen is the real politique. He's the realist, right? He's like the, I decided for whatever reason that I was going to kill the emperor, right? Like, or, or whatever it is. I decided that I have a policy goal. I have an interest, Right. And I am going to pursue this interest. And 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 in doing so, I don't have the luxury of ignoring the way that other people pursue their interests Mm -hmm. who are peers of mine. And this is this is definitely a um, I mean, this is, again, real politique kind of thing. This is much more like, you know, um, I'm trying to come up with the right historical figure other than like, you know, you could obviously say it's like Bismarck, but really it's more like. um, uh, gosh, what, like, you know, when, how the U.S. tries to, like, rationalize its involvement in places like, you know, Puerto Rico and Hawaii, where it's like, well, I guess it's a Monroe Doctrine kind of thing, too, where it's like, we have to use the tools of empire to resist empire, because, mm, yep, yeah, em- yeah, yeah. because empire is a different perspective. In, in Marva's perspective, empire is a, like, systemic social problem, right? Um, in the manifesto perspective, it's an individual wrong. In uh, Luthen's perspective, it's a technology of power, and and this is why I don't really mind if Luthen has is force sensitive or not. Like if he's using the dark side of the force, because he's using the tools of his enemy. Because he because because the in this particular formulation, the tools of empire are things that have been almost discovered rather than invented. Where like as it, as it like you know if you do this set of things. Right. Like you, you can you can exert power over other people. And this thing is transferable from one end to another. This is like, you know, you can have you know, Steve Bannon running the playbook from 60s New Left Radicals just with a different message. Right. You can have like, you know, the Nazis were a student movement that believed in a third way away from capitalism. Right. Like there's a lot of ways that you can take ideas that are formulated for one purpose 
and using and the tactics that are associated with them and employ those tactics in the pursuit of other purposes. Right. Like um, and and in doing so, you know, feel very alienated yourself from the idea that what you did and how you did it had a moral consonance to itself. And like the, the question of which of these is right is is a big question. And I don't I mean, I don't know what your perspective on it is. I think that that um, it's a little bit situational in terms of like who you are. It's hard. It's hard to separate it from who you are in your situation. Sorry, um, we say which of these is right. You mean like what uh, the, the three different monologues, like there are three different points of view or like something more specific into like um, Luther's discourse on power to to really to really dig it in. That empire is an affront to who you are as a human being. That empire, that the empire is an affront to who, your group of people mm-hmm. who are suffering because of it. Or that empire is a technology that's been developed and you either need to adopt it and use it for your ends or it's going to steamroll you. Like you have to, mm-hmm. you have to do, mm-hmm. you have to also use the dark side of the force if they're using the dark side of the force. You need to assassinate people. You need to leave people for dead, right? You need to like, in, you need to prompt people. I think the biggest thing Luther yeah. does is prompt the crackdown that causes immense suffering all over the galaxy, like knowingly. He's like, I'm going to do this thing. There's going to be a big crackdown. And I'm doing it because I'm like being accelerationist. I want to stabilize this regime. Right. And like, there's the, the other thing that he indirectly causes is Mon Mothma being OK with marrying off uh, her daughter to this uh, horrible gangster's son. Yeah, yeah, exactly. underage, like, underage daughter. Yeah, there's like personal sexual misconduct. There's like widespread starvation and death. There's like like there's all sorts of horrible consequences of the things that Luthen decides to do. And for him, they're justified because he is pursuing his strategic objective. And this is the way he's determined that he can do it. This is the way um, mm-hmm. it is interesting, like what happens to each of these perspectives if like mando shows up right like or like if actual freaking luke skywalker shows up it's it's not simple right it's really not simple right uh, be- because because at a fourth perspective and i don't want to monopolize so i want to hand it over and we might have to run a little long on andor because it's so overthinkable but um when you're thinking about old school star wars i think you're really thinking about more of a nostalgic jacobite notion of rebellion and this is the same sort of problematic notion of rebellion that I think culturally largely informed the Confederacy in the United States. And this is like Bonnie Prince Charlie and the sort of romance, right, of of Scottish warriors and kind of who are who are sort of like, uh, you know, from 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 a prior age, right, and have a sort of a latter day knight errant flair to them and and have these kind of like really identifiable and kind of personable and personable characteristics. Are and, you reading uh, the Wikipedia page of Gone with the Wind, by the way? This no, is totally wasn't comfortable. Right no, no, it's. I think it's not a coincidence. I think this is very deeply ingrained in American cinema. Ah, I'm reading. Yeah, I'm reading yeah. from uh, the Wikipedia page for Jacobitism, uh, which is a Scottish rebellion um, in the that ended in the 18th century, but which has been revived later in fondness for the literature that was made both by Scottish writers after the fact and also by people who you know loved it later. Um, and and in these stories. And we're talking about Walter, Sir Walter Scott as like a big practitioner of all this, right? And in these stories, there are not like vastly complex, problematic relationships between the different people who are trying to fight the King of England, 
Like it's like, oh, the rebels are stuck in a prison and the rebels have to break out of the prison. And how are they going to do it? Oh, they meet they meet a lowly swine herd who's one of the local people. And he recognizes that they're of good character. Right. And it's like, oh, they'll team up the high the high born prince and the low born swine herd and they'll break out of the prison. Right. And like they'll, they'll the king's guards will chase them and they'll dash away. Right. And, and there's these like capers and stuff that happen in this literature. And I don't want to totally dismiss it. I mean, obviously, as I mentioned, I attributed it to it like some pretty bad stuff. But I think the main takeaway I should say with that is like this is a, a you know, a lot of cavalry, a lot of hope that if you have sort of the best leaders and the best people, like a fundamentally BS plan right, can, like, <laughs> can seem like a really good idea. Right. Ne- never tell like, me like, the like, odds. Like hitting an exhaust port with the size of a womp rat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Never tell me the odds. This is the I mean, this is the like. You take the high road and I'll take the low road and I'll get to Scotland afore ye. Yeah, but you know what happens in that story? He dies. That's what the low road is. It's about people who get carried away, get executed. Right? So like the like actual contemporary experience of the Jacobite Rebellion is like much sadder and has this it has romance to its sort of f- folk literature and stuff. But it's like very sad and and people have very conflicting ideas about why they're doing what they're doing. And uh, but then in the literature, it becomes very simplified. And I think Luke Skywalker never really has to question um, the fact that he goes from wholeheartedly supporting the Empire to like personally killing like the entire like millions and millions of people who work for the Empire just because they work for the Empire in like a matter of a couple of weeks. (laughs) Like it's uh... (laughs) minor minor quibble here. Right. Yeah. He says he wants to go to the quote unquote the Academy. We don't really know what Academy it is. Right. Because it's also like, you know, in in that whole like, (laughs) yes, in in that whole like, you know, um... Khan Academy. He wants to (laughs) Sure, he Marine Academy, right? Yeah, exactly. He's you know, going to Kumon. It's because when, so when Obi-Wan <laughs> tells him, like, you know, come with me, join the rebellion, he's like, you know, it's not that I like the Empire, I hate the Empire, but I gotta help out on the moisture farm, yeah. right? But any, anyway, like, your, your point still stands. Like, he doesn't have to question um, the justi- his justification for, you know, killing all, like, several hundred thousand employees and contractors Yeah, uh, that like, worked on the Death Star. Yeah, Star Wars is a fusion of, like, American romantic adventure cinema and Japanese, you know, kind of borrowed notions of Japanese samurai cinema, this idea of kind of like going out there and fighting the good fight, even though, you know, you're going to die. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the idea of overcoming hopelessness is played with in a whole bunch of ways in the original trilogy. And maybe we could go back and explore that another time. Like they, the original trilogy of Star Wars, everybody is very hopeless a lot of the time and everybody's talking about hope. Uh, I do think the performances don't really carry through the kind of, uh, desperation of their situation all that often but like han solo has no hope of getting with princess leia like the ewoks have no hope of dislodging the empire from their moon right like like uh, lando calrissian situation is utterly hopeless what is he supposed to do yeah and yet they keep and yet they try right mm-hmm. um but it's but it's about i think there are different ideas different literary traditions that feed into this adventure story of still doing what you're doing against hopelessness. And what Andor is instead doing is looking at different forms of political literature that were contemporary to specific revolutions and the literature that's followed from them, rather than the sort of romantic, nostalgic literature for past rebellions that has uh, that has shaped the earlier Star Wars series and mm, cinema mm. in general. That's just how I would position it. But do you want to talk about the banality of evil for a little bit, Mark? Or, I mean, do you want to answer any of that before I... I, I no, it's, it's going to be hard to top that. That is, like, such... That's really fantastic framing uh, and, like, you know, like these three different lenses on rebellion. Um, and just, like, that... Yeah, it really just 
further underlines like the the, the depth of, uh, of of the themes going on here and and, and the complexity of things. But uh, yeah, let's let's pivot. Let's talk about the finality of evil. Um, I feel like this might be the last kind of uh, a, a chunk that we can tear off on this, at least for now. And like you know, we, by the way, absolutely, please join us on the Discord and to talk about this. Oh, yeah. Like, there's yeah, there's so much to talk about here. Okay, so let's let's set the tables here, right? Cyril. He's presented as um uh, as as a striver, I think maybe like um a middle class striver, right? We don't we don't know that's at the beginning, but like you know he he comes from humble origins. He's like just kind of like you know an average Joe guy. You know you could argue that he is quote unquote just trying to do his job, right? As you said, like you know he just he's just out for justice. You know he just yep. wants to bring killers to justice. And like that's the thing is like, he's he's not wrong, right? No. Like you know like. He's got a responsibility, right? Now, like to be clear, like, his responsibility for like over the corpo security thing, right? You know, is fundamentally corrupted because it is like you know the the empire, right? Which is run by a sadistic space wizard has outsourced it to uh, to private security. Um, but you know, he's just a guy who needs a paycheck, and um, this was how he did it. And he was given a job. He was following orders. Um, well, um, to be fair, he wasn't ex- strictly following. He, no, he wasn't following. <laughs> he orders. disobeyed That's orders because, like, yeah, because um, the uh, his boss um, was totally phoning it in, um, and this is his way of striving and deciding that he was going to impress people um, by pursuing the case that his boss told him to drop. Goes horribly for him, right? He returns back to Coruscant, um, where he's hectored by his henpecking mother, um, who tells him to basically get a job, <laughs> bring some status to this family. Um, uh, this is why I raised you. Why are you making our family look so bad? Guilt, 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 guilt. Um, and that feeds into, uh, you know, his, uh, his professional guilt of having let Andor go, um, and leads him into this obsession with wanting to help the empire. Um, you know, and, and also in the, in the personal obsession with Deidre, the ISB agent who was also hot on the case of Andor. Um, the those are kind of like you know the the to the point where at the, at the end like he 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 kind of bumbles into managing to not quite save the day but at least save Deidre's life, right? Um, and so like the, which sets him up to um become further involved in the imperial cause. Um, so I, I think like the class thing is 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 the main thing that stuck out to me about the story. Pete, you, know, you had other things there about kind of like a commentary about like how he's like, you know, positioned to be kind of an anti-hero, right? And he's contrasted with Andor in many, many different ways, in particular, like, you know, the two mother mother figures. But class was the main thing that stuck out to me. And that's maybe the most salient thing for the banality of evil discussion, right? Where, um, you know, the the a, a, a system like the Empire will orient its entire um, power structures, including the economy and jobs and compensation and things like that, to incentivize um, all, all the behavior that we saw, we saw in Cyril, um, which includes just kind of like you know uh, sociopathically um, debasing himself at the end to try to serve uh, serve the imperial cause. Um, there's a lot more going on in class there, but like Pete, like what's there, is there like what do you think about my my, my class based? So when you're talking about banality of evil, you're talking about Nuremberg, right? And like you're talking about the trials of the Nazi bureaucrats who did not personally involve themselves in the murder of people, but who facilitated them through assisting in stuff like logistics and uh, and like paper pushing and yeah. kind of background decisions and things yeah. like the, that. The general notion that like, you know, everyday people, you know, who themselves are not like, you know, hardcore ideologues just kind of get pulled into the whole machinery of the thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I like Cyril's character a lot. I like that he's in the show. I mean, I don't think I, I don't like, oh, man, that's the guy I want to have a drink with, like, obviously, because he's terrible. But I like that he's in the show. And I would say that it, he is he is in he is in tension between his life as a sort of banal and evil person, but then also his fantasy life, uh, which also relates to his ideals. So it's it's sort of like his inability to pursue his ideals in his life has led him to fantasize about the possibility of pursuing his ideals and has kind of caused him to become disconnected from reality. Um, and I think that, I mean, there's a very cycle. I feel like there's a very psychological play with Cyril to be made. And I, I don't want to dodge away from what you're saying by saying that I just, it's what comes naturally, which is like his mom is there. Where's his dad, right? Like he, he, he looks like all of the white bread people who like the empire loves to employ, not like the more sort of schlubby people around him who are framed much more to look like they come from like a sort of 20th century urban working class, right? Like he looks like he's trying to like become upwardly mobile and kind of like fit in with people and assimilate, right? He's trying to do all this mm -hmm. stuff. But I guess one thing I would say about it is that Cyril is so federalism i think is an underappreciated and important political concept in these kinds of situations and i think one of the good the great things about andor is that because it's so motivated by plot and setting up conflicts between characters i think there's a lot of different philosophies that you can overlay onto the situation that will describe it especially if the philosophies are in turn based on things that actually happened uh because like these are conflicts and so these are attempts by people to explain the conflicts so there's a federalist conflict here, which is that the local authorities don't want the empire to exert central authority over their share of the territory, right? Um, and this is because for them, they get better outcomes. They're more able to do their jobs. They find the, the empire's central authority to be like troublesome and overall a bad thing, which is, should not be a controversial opinion, right? That yeah. like, it would yeah. be better so if the empire is not here. Yeah, um, I, was, I was probably not accurately stating that like, you know, the empire had outsourced its security to the corpos. Right. That's not quite exactly what's going on because no, the corpos, no, it's similar though. You're not entirely off. Yeah, it's like they uh, they, are, they do rep they also represent that what you just said that they have the local control, right? Like they basically say was say like you know we keep things quieter around here. We keep the empire out. We don't really yeah. want the empire around here. Yeah, and this is going back to some very old overthinking and stuff right here. But the emperor, to the extent that the emperor has a political program, his political program involves dissolving the senate. And the way that the galaxy and the Republic were put together is that each senator had the represented, you know, an entire you know system or like a share of an entire system and thus represented a lot of institutions and other infrastructure that they had to deal with. So the governing of the individual systems was happening on a certain level. And then there's the senator and the senator goes to the Senate and they come up with decisions for the whole galaxy. But the galaxy is impossibly large. And so. They serve as a check on the power of a head of state, but really what they're serving as is almost a sort of fiction that the galaxy is being governed in one way, when really each senator's place is being governed in its own way. You know, like Naboo is not very similar to Coruscant. It's not very similar to like Dagobah, right? Like you don't go to Dagobah and run into like the, although Mando did this a little bit where you like run into the rebel rangers, but that's much more what you would expect from uh, a government that has a more healthy relationship with kind of federalism and stuff like what are we supposed to do as a central government vis-a-vis -vis these other governments and the emperor wants to get rid of the senate 
and run things directly through the regional governors. We learned this in like one random conversation in the first Star Wars movie. Yep. And this creates the problem of like the entire galaxy is too big to administer. Right. And he's going to get rid of all the senators because he doesn't like the fact that they have a group that can oppose him, but he doesn't have an alternative infrastructure that can adequately govern all of them. His solution is the Death Star, which is just to scare everybody so much that they will all comply with what he wants. There's no chance this will work, right? Like this is this is <laughs> not this is not how this works. That has not stopped many people from trying this in real life, right? <laughs> like like oh, if you just scare everybody enough, they'll all comply. No, they won't. They'll just do just enough to hopefully not get killed, right? Like, but they'll do the thing. But the idea that within the empire, the central apparatus of the empire does not have the build out to manage the individual planets. Therefore, who's filling in the gaps? And and what the corpos are answering here is like, well, in the old republic, it might have been like a representative government, or it might have been like. Uh, you know, a traditional constitutional monarchy, or it might have been fish people, right? Like, but all those things have been gone away with, right? No more fish people here. We kill them all uh, because we're the empire. We're the worst. Uh, and so the corporation supports the empire because it gives it the opportunity to, to like really operate as a charter company, like the East India Company. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, it, it gives it the ability to operate as if it were a nation. Now, of course, is very poorly suited to operating as a nation because it is different priorities than are demonstrated by any sort of like reasonable success metric for operating a government. And so it goes about certain things like, you know what? It's probably for the best if, if like murders just happen, right? Like, it's, <laughs> and he's not wrong, but like the interests of the corporation in this situation are like very complicated uh, and are not really great, right? It's like, I think that if the empire weren't there, the guy who's running the cops for the corpos would have a different job, right? Like if yes, you were to yes. imagine a situation, like, so if you were to imagine different perspectives on how you might replace the empire, right? So one perspective might be everybody who works for the empire is evil. Let's depose the empire. Let's chop the heads off everybody who worked for the empire and let's replace them. Another perspective might be, well, we have these people that have expertise in these various sorts of fields. Um, we're gonna kill the emperor, get rid of the empire, but like a lot of these people who are working in these sort of bureaucratic areas, we kind of need to keep them in their jobs because they know what they're doing. And if we get rid of them, then nobody's going to be able to do anything. And that's going to be a huge problem. And this is something that like is a very difficult – I mean there's so many situations if you go through the history of the 20th century of like people trying both of these things and then both working or not working in horrible ways. Yeah, right? see yeah, most recently like, the debathification in Iraq. Exactly, yes, in the early yes, 2000s, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like, and like the stuff with um, – Oh, man. I mean, I don't want to get into Afghanistan or any of that stuff. Um, but like, you know, there's there's organizations that you have in place that are doing stuff. And this guy who is the sort of cop boss, there's no sign that he's particularly good at his job, but he seems to understand the situation. And he's responding to the situation in a way that makes sense and that within the structure of the situation is probably better for everybody. But right. It's still wrong because the situation is wrong. And 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 I think I'm really trying to figure out how to unpack this here. But I think with Cyril, the idea is that Cyril is in the job because he really has a commitment to justice. If you were to look at it psychologically, I think you would say that Cyril believes in a patriarchal idea of responsibly exercising your authority. Right. Like that. The, the, the obvious sort of Freudian reading of Cyril is that his dad left his family 
and abrogated his responsibility. And since then, Cyril has wanted to be the person that his dad wasn't, which is somebody who steps up and takes responsibility for what mm-hmm. he's supposed to take responsibility for, yeah, which in the context of being a, a policeman is like, I'm going to catch the murderers. Right. Like and and in and this is the kind of situation where it's like that's a very specialized job. That job requires like oversight. Right. Like that job <laughs> requ- like he people need to make sure that he is like held accountable if he does things wrong. Right. Like but at the same time, it doesn't mean that like you don't want anybody. I mean, some people would go so far as to say there should be nobody doing that job. Other I think most people would not go that far. And when it said suggests that like it's a very dangerous job that needs to be handled in like very careful ways by the people who oversee it, as opposed to this imperial situation, which is mostly one of like abrogation of responsibility up and down the chain of command as yeah. everybody yeah, yeah, is yeah. just doing CYA right all the time. Yes. Um, and but but because Cyril has this idea of what he wants to do. And he gets into the job that would allow him to do it, but he's so alienated from being able to, to like morally and ethically do his job by the constraints of the system that he's in that it it metastasizes and his morality becomes like a parody of itself, right? He becomes this like sort of patriarchal, you know, um, really this like hurt person who hurts people uh, and, and this, this, you know, kind of abusive, creepy, you know, like uh, obsessive. Um, he goes beyond being Javert, right? Like, you know, like I gotta mm-hmm. find Andor um, in the stars with the wars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he goes beyond that to the point where he's like actively bad for himself and the other people around him. Um, and I wonder about where he ends up, right? Because, like, on one hand, look at let's look at Cyril. He's evil for sure. Like, Cyril is evil. Right. Because he is doing things for selfish reasons, very selfish reasons. His own integrity here is is what he's putting above everything else. And and it's and it's an appeasement. It's like a gratification of his integrity, not a like demonstrable exercise of his integrity. It's like he doesn't want to be embarrassed. He doesn't want to be marginalized. He wants to feel powerful. He wants to feel like a big man. He's doing a bunch of things that are hurting people and uh, and are like ultimately like helping the Gestapo, right? Mm-hmm. Like, which is, which is bad. But in the long run, let's, let's apply the three philosophical schools we just talked to, the three schools of rebellion that we talked about in Andor, right? To, to, to Cyril, because Cyril is rebelling. Like, he's rebelling in a bunch of ways. And then one of the things that Andor does that I think it's easy to, you know, not prioritize if you don't want to, is all the people who rebel and commit evil by rebelling, right? Like, uh, like the blonde Gestapo lady, Right, who is rebelling against the you know the marginalization that she feels in her job by being much more effective at finding and killing the rebels than mm-hmm. anybody else, yeah, right? Point, yeah. Like um, everybody has their own kind of rebellion that's going on, and they don't. And just because you're rebelling in Andor doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing the right thing, unless you really step back and look at it at a, at a wide stage. It's a big right. question of philosophy, right? Right. right, but, right. but the big ideas would be one: Cyril wants to be free ultimately, like. The idea of the his notion of law and order is a reflection of the ways that his own situation has hemmed him in and made him less than who he should be. Right. Like his nature is to seek out freedom. And so eventually you would hope and expect that he's going to hit some sort of breaking point and then he's going to like want to be free again. He's want to do something just for him. Right. Like uh, something independent. Now, after he's become infatuated with the empire. And so you could say, well, maybe at some point he'll like 
let Andor go and he should stop him or he'll like kill an Imperial officer he doesn't like for like, you know, or, or like he'll go on an independent investigation into like what the Emperor is up to and is going to find out what the Death Star is and is going to tip somebody off, right? Like that because Cyril is acting in a perverse relationship with his own desire for freedom, both as a rational being and as a person, that like you would eventually hope that he would break through and realize that what he's doing is wrong. Yeah. Um, or at the very least that he will he will blow up in some sort of way that will like foul things up for the other bad guys. Right? But, like, but uh, a, a yeah. very, very brief tangent on this. Let me yeah. really wrap this up. Is oh, that no, like yeah. um, the Nemec's manifesto? It's like a podcast. Yeah. And listen to it. <laughs> if only Cyril had listened to that instead of Space Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> then he would have had a much better life. Look, the thing you don't know about Cyril is that he's taking these supplements that have his teeth through the roof. <laughs> It's just like this herb. Look, you, you could you, you it's it's better than taking TRT, man. It's like it's herbal though, so you know it's healthy, right? Like, and you just Cyril is a dry scooper for real. He like hits the gym with major pre workout. It's like he's like I've I've decided to do calisthenics because you get more maximal load on your stabilizer muscles that way. Please please subscribe to my Substack newsletter about my calisthenics journey, right? Like, um, <laughs> Cyril. <laughs> Cyril is really pissed that the Liver King turned out to be a fraud because uh, he was way into the Liver King. And Teddy's like, there's no integrity in this universe anymore. Nobody believes in anything. I believe in law. I believe in order. I don't believe in the Liver King anymore. <laughs> like, what's next? Duck Dynasty? Like, what's going to happen? Um, okay, so yes, yeah, so there's that. Then there's the idea of like, okay, what what group of people does Cyril actually belong to? He doesn't. He's completely alone. He doesn't right. even have a meaningful connection with his mom. So, like, the first group of people, this is like an American History X problem. The first group of people that find Cyril and, like, offer him a place to belong are going to be the people he pledges his life to. And, like, right now that's looking like the Empire, but that's kind of up in the air, right? Like, it would not be hard to imagine a situation where Cyril, like, by some happenstance fell in with a bunch of, like, rebels or criminals or something. And he ended up, like, really infatuated with them because really he's looking for a group to belong to. And and, and oh, to it's the corporals yeah. at first, right? But then he his entire oh, yeah, but the corporals are gone now. Like the empire, is except for his, his one yeah. sergeant buddy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So like he can't. I guess it's that he's still. You know what? It's that he's, he he actually probably still belongs to his old cop crew. That's really what it is, right? They even do that where he he swaps the hats with the guy. It's like right. He right. if if there is this, a group that he has a sort of group consciousness with, it's like his fellow cops, um, who were like you know not necessarily you know. Uh, they weren't stormtroopers. They were pretty bad, though. <laughs> but you can see them sort of operating as a cell with their own interests at some point uh, if they really wanted to. Right. right like right. like his rebellion would be on behalf of now. You might argue, Cyril, that's not really your class. And then it's like, well, yeah, but like what <laughs> it kind of matters to Cyril, how he self-identifies. Well, that, then there's a whole discussion of like how you define how people think about what in-group they belong to, what's really real in terms of like the material modalities of how people organize themselves or not, you know, is intersectionality an adequate solution to the problem of multiple continuum and, and so on and so forth. And then you have the third one, which is that Cyril like needs to like be more evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like at yeah. some point, Cyril may become necessary because of what Cyril has access to. At this point, that's the argument that Cyril should really make the most of his job at like the Standards Bureau <laughs> to like route all sorts of corrupt information through the computer systems stuff. 
<laughs> like like Cyril needs to just get really underhanded and uh, and start backstabbing everybody because that's how he's been treated. So like he should probably do that too. I guess it's like that. What really that is the argument. I mean, I'm, I'm joking. Um, the real argument there is what is Cyril's strategic objective? Like what is Cyril actually trying to accomplish? And I don't think that Cyril has necessarily gotten to that point where he has translated his like abstract desire for justice. I mean, he wants to get Cassian Andor. He's like, you know, Skeletor or Gargamel in that respect. He wants to like get the Smurfs to turn them into gold or whatever. Like <laughs> he wants to like catch Cassian Andor. But we'll see what he really sees his interest is probably in the next season. Right, and right, that will right. probably shape who he is too. Like I mean, what he metastasizes further into as he like. Yeah, all, all we can it. see so far is this like vague desire to self-actualize, right? You know, kind of become a full adult, right? And not just like you know the henpeck child of his uh, overbearing mother. Um, and we before we before we talked about how you know he's this contrast to Andor primarily, but like you know as you talk about like you know this sort of power fantasy that he has, he also strikes me as a bit of a warped Luke Skywalker. Yes, yes, as well. <laughs> Right. Oh, what if know. he had force powers? That would be great. Oh if no! All of a sudden, oh. he's a he's a, he has a lightsaber. No, everybody has a oh, lightsaber. Oh, Pete! Earlier we said no space wizards in the show. No, <laughs> he no, would no, cut no. his leg off. <laughs> uh. <laughs> that's that's how his story ends. Is he gets a lightsaber and he just chops his leg off and bleeds uh. out. <laughs> <laughs> it's very dangerous being a Jedi. Oh man! If he had met Ahsoka Tano first, it would be a very different show. Um, than if he met the Gestapo lady, and and then he has to contend with um uh, you know disability services in the Empire, and then working his way through the oh, bureaucracy man. to get benefits and the, to get the Empire to pay for his wheelchair or his yeah. um or because he can't afford the uh, the droid reconstructive surgery. Yeah. Star Wars: Born on the Fourth of July is that what this is? Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. just like. Oh, <laughs> What, I don't even know the name of the imaginary months or the imaginary days of the Star Wars calendar. Born on the Galeep of Born Life, on Love. Born on Life Day. Born on Life Day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just Cyril with a mustache, chain smoking, like sitting in a wheelchair, trying to find justice for his disability, which he cost. I guess he cost himself, but. That, that doesn't have to necessarily go that way. But the, the point is that, like, everybody has a rebellion, right, in this story. And uh, I will just echo one last time that, like, especially with these theories of – especially with theories that seem to choose as their anchor a particular concept of a group of people. I, I've always struggled with these theories a bit because I, I feel like through art, like, the the – and I won't, I won't – I know where we have to end, and I'll make this quick, but, like – when you study the development of 20th century philosophy through art, which I did first, then the 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 movement, the sort of progression from modernism and structuralism through to post-structuralism and through to postmodernism makes a lot of sense. Like if you're if you're writing music, if you're making drama, you know, the idea that like this group of people are going to be the heroes and this group of people are going to be the villains. Well, can't anybody be a hero and anybody be a villain? Like, isn't the person that we call the hero the hero and the person we call the villain the villain? And, and this all kind of undermines telling stories that are rooted in kind of inherent social relationships they, or the idea that all of humanity is based on inherent social relationships from the perspective of the performing arts. It really doesn't feel that way. So when you move from seeing these philosophies as artistic critical philosophies into, you know, real life political critical philosophies, um, I'm still I'm still I get I get shocked a little bit. Um, 
And what I mean, what I mean, what's relevant to Andor is because Andor is a fictional story where everybody in Andor like has an interest and cares about events that are relevant to the plot of Andor uh, that is chief in their concern in their life. Uh, because otherwise they would not be in the show called Andor, right? Like, like then it is very natural to apply theories that classify whole groups of people as possessing an inherent or like deeply ingrained shared interest that is so ingrained as to serve as the foundation for an entire philosophy, which I otherwise find to be like kind of inadequate to the degree of chaos and kind of individual, you know, uh, individual variety and like what people choose to do with their time and also what they choose to believe in and also like how their subjectivity and the incomprehensibility of their situation like affects how they sort of sort out their own ideals um i guess again i mean does that make any sense mark um i i I think so are are you saying are you saying pete that the rebellion is made of people (laughs) yes 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 the rebellion is made of people but it's also made of the spirit of an age mark and it's really easy to identify the spirit of the age because it wears matching outfits Mm. (laughs) they have to say they wear one color hats and then the other the thesis wears one color hat and the antithesis wears a different color of hat and that's how you figure out the synthesis is when the the uh the the photon torpedo goes down into the drive shaft of the death star right and in that respect it's very easy to see the interrelations between conflicting ideas and politics uh, but it realizes Star Wars, here. ladies and gentlemen. There we go. Mark, do you have any last Andor thoughts? Um, oh, I have I have so many more, but um, just like again to reiterate my appreciation for this, like it is just kind of like this fascinating gem. Yeah, of a piece well, of art. It, it, it really succeeded, kind of in, in in spite of like the the weight of the the franchise that brought it to this point. Indeed. Well. Uh, take a load off Annie cause, and put the load right on Star Wars for the afternoon <laughs> and uh, give yourself a break. Watch watch some good TV if you like and, and check out Andor if you haven't. And and when you're done with that, join our Discord and chat with us about it. I know a lot of the people on the Discord, are, I can already guess what their opinions of it are going to be. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. And it's going to be good stuff. So uh, if you don't want to have seen Andor or you want to talk about that, you can just like play around with us as we generate uh, text from the AI, <laughs> from the yes. open, from the, the AI chat, the crazy AI chat bot. That exactly. Which is also, also a lot fun. of fun. All right. But yeah, in, in any event, all of this can be found at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. We didn't talk about Cassie and Andor like at all. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you're not even a little bit. <laughs> like him being native and indigenous or anything. Like we like mentioned briefly and he changed his name. But like, man, talk and about only, and only very briefly how he escaped from a prison with none other than Gollum slash Snoke himself. Oh, yeah, man. That That's happened. Right. That's right. The whole prison thing was so great. We didn't even talk about it. Gosh, yeah. Oh, on program. We were, were, we, were we not on program, Pete? I don't think we were on program. It was our own little rebellion, I suppose. Hmm.